are going to read today three different stories, and they are connected. Uh, there's a, actually, they're all connected with last week with the Syrophoenician woman and the deaf-mute man healing. This is all one big package, the Syrophoenician woman, the deaf-mute healing, and then we're going to see this. Our first story is the feeding of the 4,000. It's going to feel like deja vu because we already had the feeding of the 5,000. It's going to feel like reading the same story, but there's an important significance uh, in the difference. And then we're going to move on to a conflict with the Pharisees and then Jesus rebuking his disciples. And all of those come together to make one big point. So we're going to get started on Mark chapter 8, verse 1 in just a second. Dad, if you would pray over our time in the Word. I was gracious, Heavenly Father. Thank you so much for your Word. We're looking forward to hearing what you have to say to us today. We ask that you'll fill your servant with the Holy Spirit. Father, help proclaim the words that you would have us to learn. And open our ears and our understanding to understanding your Word. Then Amen. Let's get started here with that first story. Again, stick with me. It's going to feel like you've already heard this before. Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 1. In those days, the days Jesus was in the Decapolis in a very pagan place, in a, a place where there's not a lot of Jews. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered to Jesus and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. Let's pause there for a minute. So we have Jesus here in the Decapolis where he was last week. With a, it's a very pagan area. And this Jewish teacher Jesus has gathered to himself a big group. We're going to find out it's at least 4,000 people. And as they're there essentially hanging on every word because they've been there for three days without having food. They just want to keep hearing him teach. Jesus says he has compassion on them. It's a very fun word in the original language. The word is splagnon. And what it means is like in my inner parts, like in my guts. We might say gut-wrenching. He had compassion on these people. And remember, when we had the feeding of the 5,000, a very similar word was, was used. Jesus boat comes up on shore, they're trying to get away, and they see these 5,000 people waiting on them, and Jesus felt compassion for them. He said he, at that point, they looked like sheep without a shepherd, and so here he feels compassion again on this crowd, and you may not get it from your first reading how significant that is, but it's super significant for the first reader, because when Jesus fed the 5,000, it was a bunch of Jews, his people, now he feels the same thing. He feels compassion. He feels gut-wrenched over a bunch of pagan Gentiles. And you're immediately supposed to get this point. Jesus feels for all people. Jesus is for everybody, the poor and the middle class and the rich and the, the southerner and the northeasterner and the west coaster and the, the Ugandan and the, and the Chinese and the, and the German, literally everybody. You're supposed to immediately from the story know, man, Jesus is for all people, not just his. Verse 4. And his disciples answered Jesus, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? If you'll stop there for a second, remember the last time this happened, Jesus said, You feed them. And they were incredulous, like, What do you want me to do? I, I can't, what, how am I going to feed these folks? And so it's a, it's a similar issue in the seemingly unsolvable problem. We're out in the wilderness. How do you think we're going to come up with food for 4,000? Verse 5. And Jesus asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And Jesus directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. 
And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke the He broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. Again, it's the same scene as last time, I imagine. He's got a bunch of baskets, Jesus does. Last time it was five loaves, two fish. Now it's seven loaves. Jesus breaks them up, puts them in baskets, sends the disciples out. They serve the people. They come back and there just keeps being full baskets when they come back. Verse 7. And they, the disciples, they had a few small fish. And having blessed the fish, Jesus said that these also should be set before the crowd. And the crowd ate, and they were satisfied. And the disciples took up the broken pieces left over, and it was seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and Jesus sent them away. Now, we'll stop there for a couple minutes. This does seem like the same story, right? Like, we, it's just changed the numbers. It was 5,000, and then now it's 4,000. At the, at the last time we did this story, there were 12 baskets left over. Now it's seven baskets left over. Big deal. Let's move on. But it actually is a really big deal that Jesus is giving the same care and compassion and resources to us, the Gentiles, as he did the Jews to whom he was promised. Even the baskets being left over, there's a lot of symbolism there. I'm only going to give you one. But in the feeding of the 5,000, there were 12 baskets left over to, to say the 12 tribes of Israel, that's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob's sons, all of Israel is going to be cared for, and they're going to have abundance through this Messiah. But if you go to back into Genesis and Exodus, you find that in Canaan land, in Canaan, when, when Israel was going to go into that land, there were seven nations there, the Perizzites, the Hittites, and five others, I can't remember. But there were seven Gentile nations in Canaan, and so here's Jesus giving you the symbol all of the Jews will, be have, will have plenty and all the Gentile nations will have plenty through this Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah for the whole world. He doesn't belong to you alone. He belongs to all of his people. He is the Savior of the world. And so that's the first story here, is Jesus giving the same care to us, the Gentiles, as he did the Jews. Verse 10, we'll read very quickly. And immediately, Jesus got into the boat with his disciples and he went to the district of So this is now Jewish land. He just left Gentile pagan land, and he's back in Jewish land, and here's what happens to him. Verse 11. The Pharisees came. We know these guys, right? It means conflict is coming. The Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Let's stop there for a little bit. These words uh, in our language don't have as much force as the original. The word came there more like the word attack. It's, it's the words that was used when your, uh, your army was hiding in the, like in, the tree, in the tree line and they're about to come out of the tree line. That's how the Pharisees are coming. They came out of hiding. They came, to a, they came to attack. That word argue, they came to attack and began to argue is actually interrogate. They came to interrogate Jesus and they're asking for a sign, which by the way, it's a little ridiculous. Uh, even if they haven't seen everything Jesus has done, they've seen a lot and they've heard a lot. He just fed over a period of some months, 9,000 people with the equivalent of a grocery bag of groceries. And that's a sign. Uh, they've seen a lot of the healings, and he, and they want a sign, but they want a very specific sign. To saying to Jesus, essentially, you've done what you've done, but we want what we want. We want the sign that we want. You do whatever miracles you want. We want the miracle of the Messiah that we want. We want the, we want the revolution. We want you to go defeat our enemies. You give us the sign that we ask for. Your signs aren't good enough for us. And so they're coming to attack and interrogate and say to Jesus, you come to us on our terms. 
And as they do that, the Pharisees are embodying two themes, two biblical themes. Number one, the Pharisees are embodying this theme in the Bible and in Jewish literature that refers back to the generation, it's called the lost generation of Israel. That would be the, the group that got out of Egypt and for 40 years wandered in the wilderness and they didn't get to go into the promised land. That's an important generation for Jews. We might think back uh, as Americans, we think about the revolutionary generation as we're going to celebrate them on Saturday. Or we think about the greatest generation, those that came through the Great Depression and World War II. And we, we think about that particular group as important. For the Jews, this was, a, this was a group of people they thought back on to don't be like them. This, this group that didn't trust God, refused to trust, they wandered in the wilderness and didn't get God's promise because of their lack of trust. And this is supposed to be language that connects. The Pharisees, they're just like those guys. They're just like those 40 years of wandering Jews. And the language that you've already heard and you're about to hear really lays that out. For example, in a minute Jesus is going to say, why does this generation want a sign? And that word generation is the same one that was used for those, that generation that didn't get to go to the promised land. When it says it came to, uh, they came to test him, a sign from heaven to test him, that's something the Jews got accused of by God accurately a lot during that time. They were, they were demanding a sign from God to test them. That word sign, that they want a sign from you, uh, that was used in the Exodus for the plagues, for getting the water from the rock, for manna. God was sending them signs. And so that conclusion they want you to, that Mark wants you to understand, is the problem with the Pharisees here is they embody that group of people who just refused to trust God, who demanded a sign from him and said, God, come to us on our terms. They embody that, number two. They embody a heart of unbelief. Not a, not a body, excuse me, they don't embody a heart of doubt, but unbelief. Doubt is a, a struggle to believe. You believe and you really want to, but you, you struggle to do it. That's what doubt is. Unbelief is not struggling to believe. It is a refusal. It's a refusal to trust. And so you have this group in Israel, these 40-year wanderings, these Pharisees. They don't just doubt God. They don't believe. Unless you come to me and do what I want on my terms, I will not believe you are who you say you are. And this posture of the heart, not doubts. Doubts are fine, but the posture of unbelief, that permeates our culture in and outside of the church. You might have heard in our culture, the sentence that begins this way. I could never believe in a God who, fill in the blank with everyone. I could never feel, I could never uh, believe in a God who judges, who has this ethic, who thinks people should live this way, whatever this world says. I could never believe in a God who does this. I want to say this with as much kindness as I can, but it doesn't matter what you think. It, it doesn't matter at all what you could or could not believe. God comes to us on his terms. He declares who he is, and we don't get to demand things of him. There are people in our culture that just think they, they're so advanced and the, the God of the Bible, the Yahweh, is so primitive. But we have this heart in our culture that is demanding God come and be like us, come to us on our terms. And that's what's happening with the Pharisees here, the same way the generation of that Jews is 40 years of wandering. And so that's the heart. The heart is, I don't believe, and you're going to come to me on my terms if you want me to believe you. And they demand a sign, verse 12. Jesus responds to their demand of a sign, their attack, their interrogation. Verse 12, And Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit and said, 
Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Jesus sighs again, like he did last week. I think it's more of despair this time. It's a sadness. And he gives them an emphatic no. Truly I say to you, you are not getting a sign from me. I'm not coming to you on your terms. Then verse 13. And Jesus left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. So Jesus didn't just say no. He straight up leaves them. No, you're not getting what you want on your, uh, on your terms, and he straight up leaves. Now here's the irony Mark would love you to pick up. Just chapters before, last chapter, a pagan, multicultural, multi-ethnic, Syrophoenician woman, she embraces Jesus. The, the pagan friends of the deaf mute, they embrace Jesus. These 4,000 pagans, they embrace Jesus as he's in that land. And then Jesus comes back home, as it were, comes back to Jewish land, and they do that to him. They reject him as the world is coming to him. His people reject him. Now, verse 14, this is the last set of the story. So we had the feeding of the 4,000. We had the Pharisees in that conflict. And now Jesus is in the boat with his disciples. And they have a, they have a fun conversation here. Verse 14. Now they, the disciples, had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf of bread with them in the boat. Let's stop there for a second. First, I feel like if I was part of a miracle just moments ago, uh, some days ago, that included seven like miracle bread loaves, I'm keeping one of those, right? I want to keep those around, at least sentimentality, uh, that you keep the loaf of bread. But they have this problem. They are now in a worried discussion. And you have to pick up here. There's no dialogue. But the discussion in the boat is, oh, guys, we left and we only have one, one loaf of bread. There's 13 of us. What are we going to do? I need you to pick up that connotation. They're worried. What are we going to do for food? Because they got in the boat, they forgot to bring bread, and now they have this worry. What, what about the bread situation that we're in? And Jesus wants to use this as a teaching moment. They're worried about what they're going to eat. And Jesus does it in his very enigmatic way. I would imagine you've done this if, you've read, if you're reading the Gospels. Sometimes Jesus says stuff and you go, I have no idea. I have no idea what's going on. Like last week when he said to the Syrophoenician woman, the thing about the dogs... What? Like, what? How is? What are you saying? Well, that's it's one of these. We'll break it down together. So imagine they're in the boat. The disciples are talking to each other. We forgot to bring bread. What are we going to do? We're going to be so hungry. Verse five. Verse fifteen. And Jesus cautioned them, saying, "Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod." That does not seem to be a to be a response to an issue of needing bread. So let's understand it for a minute. All right, so first, leaven. You have to understand leaven. Um, it's fermented dough. Essentially, you would be making bread. You'd take some of that. You'd leave it. Take some of that uh, and just put it on the shelf. Let it ferment because you're going to use then that leaven to make your next batch as your rising agent. You take some of that. You always have your leaven to raise your, your bread. And if it ever goes bad, if you do it wrongly, you break your entire bread-making enterprise, and there's not a lot of dietary variety back then. You're going to need your bread. And so if you ruin the leaven, or the leaven ruins your lump of dough, you have to get leaven from someone else. It's a big deal. Leaven was this very powerful thing to make sure you had bread. And because it was so sensitive, because it was such a small thing that could break down your entire enterprise of being able to eat, the Jews and some other ancient cultures, we find, started using leaven as an analogy for evil because it's just a little thing it's subtle but it's so powerful 
And if it gets if, you, if it gets in there, if it gets into your into your lump, into your loaf, you've got a big you got a get big problem if you did it incorrectly. And so Jesus says, "Well, beware of the leaven." They're used to that, but then be aware of the the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. It doesn't seem to be a, a part of the dis- discussion thus far. It seems like a non sequitur, but they're also a really weird partnership to put those two in the same category for this reason. The Pharisees are, if we put it in modern parlance, are right-wing, ultra-religious, traditionalist nationalists. That's who the Pharisees are. Herod is a turncoat, internationalist, loyal to Rome, kind of secular, and their version of secular would be having a bunch of gods. Like, these are really left-wing. That's Pharisees and Herod. What on earth do they have in common? They have the one thing. They reject Jesus. They oppose Jesus. And he says to them, hey, watch out. I know you're talking about not having bread, but watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of, the leaven of Herod. Well, what is that leaven? That leaven is a rejection of Jesus. It's a refusal to trust that Jesus is who he says he is. And so he's warning the disciples to be careful not to do what both the Pharisees and Herod had done. Don't reject me. Don't miss who I am. So they say, we only have one loaf of bread. What are we going to do? And Jesus says, be careful of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. And then, verse 16, in they the twelve, they began discussing with one another. Let's stop there for one second. So Jesus says this enigmatic thing. And now i got twelve guys in a boat trying to figure out what it means. And I wish I could hear it. I wish I could, could hear what their theories are. What does Jesus mean? But here is where the conversation is revolving. They begin discussing with one another the fact that they have no bread. So that's what they're obsessed over. They're, what is Jesus talking about? He's probably talking about how we have no bread. That's where their minds are. And he's, he's trying to give them a hint about something deep in life, and they're really obsessed with the fact. But what about our bread situation, though? What are we going to do there? So verse 17 through 21, we're going to read them all together here. Jesus is aware of this. It says he's aware of this conversation they're having because they're still talking about bread. And here's what he says. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, guys, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And Jesus says, in, in the seven baskets for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? It's interesting here. Jesus has seven questions for them. And of these seven questions, a lot of them refer back to Old Testament questions. One of them is an actual quote. When he asks, do you have eyes to see but you don't see? Do you have ears to hear but you don't hear? That is all over Exodus as one of the things that, guess who? That generation of 40 years wandering in the wilderness, that that is what God said of them. Do you not see what I've done? Are you not hearing my voice. Then if you go through the prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, they'll say that to Israel. 
Do you not see? Do you not hear? And so get what Mark is doing here and what Jesus is doing. He's already connected the Pharisees. Your demand of a sign from me to prove myself. You're just like that lost generation of Israel. And now to the, to the disciples. Your obsession over whether or not you're going to have what you need. You're just like them. You're just like the Pharisees. You don't, you won't trust me. You won't believe me. And you're just like that group. You're just like that lost generation of Israel, those 40 years of wandering. You're just like them. And so in this passage, Jesus is connecting the Pharisees who reject him, the disciples who are trying to follow him. He connects them both to a generation that won't believe God, won't trust in him. But consider the parallels. This is a actually really easy connection. And I would imagine for the disciples, knowing what he said to the Pharisees, this has to sting a little bit that he's saying that to them. But consider this. That generation of Israel, they saw the ten plagues. Consider the intensity of seeing that. The river turned to blood, frogs everywhere. We got darkness and the hail. And then, for that matter, death angel and crossing the Red Sea. All of this, the manna from heaven and seeing all of that just won't consistently believe. They continually wonder if God is going to keep his promises and do what he said he was going to do. That's the Israel of 40 years ago. But consider the disciples. They saw the healings. They saw the calming of a storm and demons cast out. They've seen 9,000 and some odd people fed with that grocery bag. They've seen the deaf hear the mute speak and they saw him walk on water and they just won't believe. They saw all that, and now they're in the boat wondering, are we going to have enough? Are we going to eat? There's a, a really clear connection here that Israel doubted God the Father, but these disciples are doubting God the Son. And we have in this text, the Pharisees saying, show us a sign is no different than the disciples saying, we have no bread. They're both statements of not trusting God. They're both statements of a lack of faith. So, That's the text for today. What I have for you here is five lessons. Five lessons from the disciples and the Pharisees. Five lessons we can learn from the disciples and the Pharisees. There is, if we want to set up a a parallel here, there's the leaven, the leaven of the disciples and the Pharisees, but then there's the real bread, the bread of life, Jesus, and how these two can be set up. So here we go. Five things. Number one. The first one is a question. Jesus asks them this question, and he would ask you today. Do you have eyes to see? Are you blind? Are you spiritually blind? Do you have eyes to see the work God has done and is doing in your life right now? We, I think, a lot like the Pharisees, we want the big miracle. We pray for a big miracle, and that's fine. Let's pray for those. Lord, send us a sign. Send us something big. But we do fail to see the miracles abounding all around us. We are blind to God's work in our life. And that's the question for you today is the question the disciples got asked. Do you have eyes to see what God is doing in your life? I'll just give you this example from the text. Here is Jesus doing this miraculous thing. He's going to feed 4,000. But he does, he does it with the most common of things. He does it with the staple of the diet of that time. Bread and fish. He didn't do the miracle in such a way that he served a seven-course meal. There was no sirloin or filet. That was, what you got? You got bread and fish? Let's do that. 
It was miraculous, but it was inside the mundane. And a lot of the miracles in our lives, it is the miraculous inside the mundanity of life. It's just the bread and fish of our life, but it's still a miracle. It's just your loving spouse, but it's a miracle. It's just your healthy kids, but that's a miracle. It's just your good job, your safety, your health. It's a good night's sleep, a restorative vacation, an incredible conversation, a hot cup of coffee in the morning. It's an ocean, a mountain. Maybe it's the miracle of seeing your child smile, but they're all miracles. And do you have eyes to see what God is doing in your life? That in the mundanity and the regimen of life, it's miraculous what God has done for us. And so that question to disciples, that question to you is, do you have eyes to see what God is doing in your life? Well, have those eyes. Have eyes to see the goodness that God is doing all around you through your day-to-day mundane lives. So number one, do you have eyes to see God's work in your life. Number two, do you have ears to hear what God is saying in your life? Number two, do you have ears to hear what God is saying in your life? Let me say this with some boldness. If you are not hearing from God, it is not because God is silent. It is because life is noisy. I think back to Elijah in the Old Testament. He has this really dramatic experience wanting the presence of God and then there's this big earthquake but the Bible says God wasn't in the earthquake and there was a whirlwind and God wasn't in the whirlwind but then after all of this dramatic event there was a still small voice and that's where God was it's not that God is silent it's that God is quiet he talks like this sometimes and while I I don't know for sure why I think the answer to that is because he wants an intimate conversation. And to have one of those, you got to be in a quiet space. I don't know if you've ever had someone try to communicate with you important information while in a big crowd or in a concert. I get very frustrated with that. Like You understand this is the, the, the wrong context to have this conversation. We're having to yell at each other. How about we get to a quiet place because that's where real conversations can happen. But our lives are so noisy. This is constantly going off. We walk in our houses and there's spouses, children, pets making a bunch of noise. We get in our car and immediately the Bluetooth connects or the aux cord goes in or the radio comes on. We get to work and everything. Go, go, go. In a modern society, we are really noisy. This culture won't let you be quiet. This culture won't have an environment where you hear God's voice. And so that will take from you. If, if you're not going to fail to hear God's voice, if you're going to have ears and hear... It's going to have to be intentional. It's going to have to be a discipline. A discipline of solitude. A a discipline of silence. Where you can get away and not just to unplug and recharge from your your very hard and your very busy life. But the discipline to unplug and get alone for the purpose of prayer. For the purpose of Bible reading. Not just to recharge your your life in that way, but to actually seek out this conversation with God because He is talking right now. The world is just drowning it out. So you, let me encourage you, do it on purpose. Be intentional. Now, I think some of you would have a, some of you would have an objection. You would say, hey man, uh, you're single. You have no idea what my life is like. The idea of getting alone for any appreciable period of time, that is going to be hard. So can I encourage spouses, 
friends of whatever situation people are in, be intentional about it. Do it on purpose. Create that space for each other because God is talking. But he talks in that still, small voice. And you're going to need the quiet to hear it. So number one, do you have eyes to see the work God is doing in your life? Do you have ears to hear God's voice in your life? Number three is something that Jesus said to the disciples. So he said, do you have eyes but not see? Do you have ears but not hear? And then he says this question. Have you forgotten? Have you forgotten God's faithfulness? That's that third question. Have you forgotten what God has done? I say it a lot in here, and I say it on purpose. And if we did take the time to talk through with each other how God has been faithful in some really rough times in our lives, there's a lot of stories in here that we could remember. We could remember how faithful God has been in that moment. That your marriage almost didn't make it, but God came through. In that moment where you thought there was a, a relationship with a with a spouse, a sibling, uh, a, a friend that you thought was broken, but reconciliation happened. When your kid was really mixed up in a lot of a lot of stuff, but God came through. In the financial calamity, in the addiction recovery, in the heartbreak that was healed. Do you remember those times when you thought there was just no hope, there was no way out of this, and you can look back on it now and know that. Oh, the Lord delivered me. In this room, the the healings of our even our the healings of heartbreak in this room and the healings of broken bodies, the healings of our children. There's a lot of things we could say about the faithfulness of our God. Don't be like the disciples. He asked the, the disciples, "Have you forgotten what you've seen?" The question for you today is, "Have you forgotten? Have you forgotten what God has done?" Dwell on those. Dwell in the stories of God's faithfulness. Let it fuel your faith and your trust in him in the future. The, the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of Herod, the leaven of the disciples is to forget what God has done. The bread of life is to remember what God has done. So do you have eyes to see God's work in your life? Do you have ears to hear God's voice in your life? Have you forgotten what God has done in your life? Number four, I want to swing back to the Pharisees here. You know, they come. they came to God... With, not with questions, but they came to Jesus, they came to God in the flesh, Jesus, with questioning. And those are two different things. Coming to God with questions, coming to your pastors with questions, coming to spiritual leaders with questions, that's so good and healthy. As we continue in a culture that is continuing to secularize, it's getting less and less Christian, but it's also clarifying what real Christianity is, one of the things that I, I want for us to create for all the time that we're together is an atmosphere where questions are welcome. That just or stuff when spiritual things confuse you, questions are welcome. But that's not what the Pharisees had. They didn't come with questions. They came with a spirit of questioning. They came with a spirit of authority over God. You will answer to me. You will answer to me in what I want. And that's what this culture does. And there is no place for that. That's to be repented of. Because Job tried that, by the way. Job tries in, in the Old Testament to ask God questions, demand an answer for what's happening. And Job, God's response to Job is, where were you when I made everything? Where were you when I threw out the stars? Where were you when I said to the waters, you stop right there? When did I, where were you when I said to the mountain, you grow that high? Where were you? I know what I'm doing. Don't come to me questioning. You can come with questions. 
But my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. So questions are welcome. But the spirit that we have in our age of questioning God that he should answer to us, we have no place for that. That's to be repented of. Final thing. So do you have the ears to hear? Do you have eyes to see what God is doing? Are you forgetting what God's already done? Questions are welcome, but not a spirit of questioning. And final thing. I want to go back to Jesus feeding those 4,000 for a second. There is, in that spirit of the disciples, and I think of the Pharisees, there is a spirit that permeates our culture today called entitlement. That I, I deserve everything that I need, and I probably deserve more. That's actually a really common phrase you're going to pick up in conversation in secular culture. You deserve so much better. You deserve so much more. That's a thing this culture is discipling you in. And that is the leaven of the Pharisees. The leaven of the Pharisees is you deserve the sign you want. You deserve exactly from God what you demand of him. The, the, the spirit of the disciples in that moment, you deserve to have all of the satisfaction of whatever, how much bread you want. That's the leaven. There's the bread of life saying, hey, you, you can trust me. You're, you're going to have what you need. So they had a spirit of entitlement, but Jesus gives us a spirit of gratitude in the story of the feeding of the 4,000. For example... He needs to feed 4,000, and he asks, what you got? Seven loaves, and apparently they had a few fish. There is, Jesus is fully God, fully man, right? That fully man, I can't say portion, we're about to, about to commit heresy in how we talk about Jesus as a, as a trinity. Uh, excuse me, we're talking about Jesus as the God man. But something in the humanity of Jesus goes, just seven? You got seven loaves, and got two fish. That, that can be, why can't there be more? I'm the Messiah, I'm the Son of God. Like, why can't there be more? But that's not what he does. That's how the Pharisees are. That's how the disciples are. Instead, Jesus goes seven loaves and some fish. Thank you. He actually gives thanks. Thanks for my seven loaves and my two fish. This is enough. The leaven says, you deserve better. The bread of life says, give thanks even for the few small fish and some bread that you've got. When your perspective changes from entitlement to gratitude, not knowing I deserve everything I've got and I deserve more, but knowing everything I've got came from the hand of God and I'm so grateful for it. When your perspective changes, it will change everything. So maybe, if I can give you this encouragement to finish, be grateful for the fish and bread of your life. Be thankful for that little bit that God has given you. And then thank God and eat of it. Celebrate it. He gave you the marriage you've got. Be thankful for it. Celebrate. He gave you the family that you have. Give thanks for it. He gave you the children, the job, the resources, the talent, the time. That's the bread and the fish that he's given you. Do what Jesus did. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for what I've got. This is plenty. And then what he did with that is he shared it. He had enough and he shared and so, I want to pray for us here in just a minute as the band will come up as I pray. Number one, do you have eyes to see what God is doing in your life? Take the, the time to see it, that the miracles come in the mundane. Do you have ears to hear what God is saying in your life? Find the, the space to get out of this noisy culture and hear from God. Don't forget what God has already done in your life. Dwell on those things. Let it fuel your faith. And let's not have this, uh, this attitude that is so pervasive in our culture where we think we deserve more than we've got let's take what the lord has given us be so thankful for it and share it with others
pray together as the band comes up. Lord, we thank you for the Gospels. Thank you for 